Do you believe in God? It's one thing to believe in God, to assent to God's existence, to respect or fear God, as the scriptures say. Do you believe in God? Yes, of course I do. Pollsters keep track of how many Americans believe in God. We use labels like believer or agnostic or atheist to categorize our belief or our unbelief. But no matter the labels we assume, it's quite another thing to believe in God's presence and activity in the details of our lives. To assent to God's interest in, or God's participation in, or God's direction of our circumstances or of our decisions. And these questions, as these questions go, I've learned that it's much more interesting and much more provocative to ask not whether I believe in God or someone else believes in God, but why God would believe in me. Does God exist? Not as interesting as do we exist. Why would God believe in us or trust us or work through us? Does God believe in us? Does God trust us? Does God work with and through us? What if we keep these latter questions in mind now as we remember the story of Joseph? Who is Joseph? He is Pharaoh's powerful vizier, a kind of vice president or a chief executive officer, Pharaoh's highest ranking officer, and practically as equal. In fact, Joseph calls himself the father of Pharaoh. The youngest son of Jacob, he'd been sold into slavery by his brothers decades before. Joseph was a precocious child then. You can imagine him running into the fields as his brothers worked the land and telling them of his dreams of how he was going to rise above them one of these days. And they would bow down to him. Not surprisingly, his brothers didn't enjoy hearing about Joseph's dreams after a while, and once when they saw him coming from a distance, they plotted to destroy him. They quickly conspired to kill him and to blame it on the wild animals. His brother Reuben talked them out of it and into leaving him into a pit in the wilderness. Again, out of Reuben's sight, the other brothers sell Joseph to some passing merchants. And then the brothers take Joseph's elegant robe, his robe, his coat of many colors, or his robe with long sleeves, his elegant robe. They rip it in half and they soak it in goat's blood and they take it to their father Jacob to fool him into believing that Joseph indeed had been torn to shreds by a wild beast, and Jacob is inconsolable. Now we meet him today, well after Joseph has become one of the one of, the, of which his dreams foreshadowed. He's now one of the most powerful leaders in the world. He has the upper hand over his brothers now. In a time of famine, they have come to Egypt 
to fetch grain for their family, they are unaware that they are appealing to their baby brother. But Joseph recognizes them. He manipulates them into bringing their other brother Benjamin back on a return trip. And as the chapter opens today, Joseph is no longer able to choke back the tears of his emotion in the encounters, the repeated encounters that he is having and the memories that they're stirring up with his brothers. Overcome with emotion, he dismisses everyone but his family members and begins to sob so loudly, as we heard, that those in the Pharaoh's house can hear it. It echoes beyond the palace. The words, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Decades after they threw him into the pit, decades after they sold him for 20 pieces of silver, after decades of hiding this explosive secret from their father Jacob, the brothers stand before their brother Joseph, the one whom they betrayed, in shock, in dismay, unable to speak. Can we step into the palace now to, to overhear the exchange? Again, the vizier says, I am your brother, Joseph. They already feared him even before they knew his identity. Their nerves are already frayed by the constant worry of retribution from misunderstandings and Joseph's incognito manipulations. And now they stand before one of the most powerful human beings in the world, certain that he has every reason to punish them and every means to destroy them at his disposal. At least in this reading comes my very favorite part, the beginning of chapter 45, verse 5. This is when the music reaches a crescendo and the suspense reaches a fever pitch. When Joseph says to his brothers, and now, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, the hairs raised on the backs of his brother's necks, their stomachs are sinking, cold beads of sweat arise. And now, and now what? Off with their heads? To the torture chamber they go. Prepare the gallows or lock them away for decades and let them see how it feels. What does Joseph say to these who have left him for dead? And now be not distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. If we read closely, it really is a bit humorous how quiet these brothers are throughout the story. For the duration of the narrative, they don't say a word, really until the last verse in our reading. And even then, we don't get any details. It's just, after these things, his brothers talked with him. And from this moment on, 
Joseph explains to them how God has taken all the evil things they've done and, well, how God has manipulated their manipulations, exploited their exploitations, outmaneuvered their maneuvers, redirected their orchestrations, and choreographed their corruptions into reconciliation, not only for an entire family, but for the salvation of a nation. God sent me before you. God sent me to preserve life. It was not you who sent me, but God. God has made me Lord of Egypt. We see God working in Joseph to reconcile and redeem. It's one of the great mysteries that Scripture teaches us. That our actions can be both God's and ours at the same time. And even that God will sabotage the wickedness of our time using us as God's undercover operatives, if you will. I think of God's having done this and continuing to do this in the Pakistani girl, Malala Yousafzai. Now a young woman who began advocating for girls' education under Taliban rule, her message of equality was beginning to spread and catch fire. When one day on her way home from school, a masked gunman boarded her school bus and asked the question, where is... Malala. Who is Malala? She identified herself and he shot her in the head and she survived. And now after many surgeries, she has founded the Malala Fund with her father, for which she has become the youngest ever Nobel Prize winner. And this spring she graduated from Oxford University and continues her fight for justice for the 130 million girls around the world who face tremendous obstacles to education. God used this one to obfuscate, to frustrate the plottings of the violent for the sake not only of her and her own family, but for an entire nation and now many nations. And I also think of the late John Lewis, who, like Joseph, was left for dead by his brothers, in this case, his white brothers, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Can you imagine walking straight in to the line of gun and club-wielding officers of the law? Can you imagine just you and your peers walking straight into a wall as tall and as thick as centuries of white supremacy? Do we know how terrifying it is to stare into the dark tunnel of death? To be beaten, to have our skull cracked, 
to lose consciousness and to watch the life seep out of our companions at the same time. Like Joseph, though, he became a powerful man in our land, a prime leader of nonviolent movements, a congressman for over 30 years. How many of us were as stunned as Joseph brothers when we read Lewis's posthumous editorial last week in the New York Times, just days after his death? If what had happened to any of us, what happened to John Lewis had happened to any of us, what would come after the phrase, and now? In his last words to the nation, Lewis writes, when historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. This is the good news for each one of us today. That God, so unassuming in the world, partners with us that we may walk with the wind of God's breath and spirit to plot, to orchestrate, to choreograph. In God's name, and to do the works of him who's called us into his marvelous light in ways that are so reflective of that light that it's really hard to tell the difference between what God is doing and what we're doing for others. Do you believe in God? What if God believes in us? What if God trusts us? What if one of God's greatest desires is to work with and through us? I believe, yes, Lewis was right to say it is our turn it is our turn to let freedom ring. And now...